you know, it was really about how are they feeling? You know, resolve well, but a lot of people um, know us for our advocacy work or awareness work, but we're also big into patient support. In fact, we have support groups all over the country that prior to this, we're, we're meeting in person. And so we wanted to know, were, were patients getting support? Where were they getting it? Just really, how were they feeling? Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here, you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. I wanted to have Barbara Kulura back on to Inside Reproductive Health. Many of you know Barb because she's the president and CEO of Resolve. She is one of the most outspoken patient advocates in our field. She's been on the show before. We've been friends for a number of years that we met via Twitter or her lack of Twitter. And Resolve has some really cool new findings that came from patient attitudes during the crux of the the COVID shutdown. And we're going to go over what those mean for clinics that have reopened, whether this happens again or whether it doesn't, what the evergreen findings are. So Mrs. Kalura, Barb, welcome back to Inside Reproductive Health. It is, it is great to be back, and it's also great to see you. You look great, and I'm hoping that all is well in, in your corner of the world during this, uh, during this crazy time. So far, so good in Western New York. So far, so good with Fertility Bridge. And we, I, think, I think we got to see a lot of who was, who was for real and who wasn't the last three months based on how quiet people got or how helpful they were. One of the helpful things that you did was amass this pretty substantial study, I mean, over 500 respondents. Um, and so talk to us about the study. What was it? And maybe even before that, what was it that you were setting out to do with it? Well, uh, you know, we are always doing surveys at Resolve of our community and our constituents. Um, Gosh, I've been at Resolve for many years, and we do several surveys a year on a variety of things. And so we had started thinking about this, I would say, the beginning of April, Griff, and we were starting to to realize that there was a a lot of, of disconnect between the providers and patients Patients were emotionally um, in a in a whole new space. We also started hearing from some of our trusted partners, hey, you know, maybe a survey would be good because people will respond if Resolve does it, but there's there's maybe some things that we could learn and and some good information that we could put together. So uh, we um, put this survey together, and it was at this particular time, which was in April we were really looking at how patients were doing who were impacted by the the clinic shutdown or partial shutdown for some clinics. So that was the specific audience we wanted to know. How were they doing emotionally? Uh, Where were they getting information? How were they getting support? 
you know, it was really about how are they feeling? You know, resolve well, but a lot of people um, know us for our advocacy work or awareness work, but we're also big into patient support. In fact, we have support groups all over the country that prior to this were, were meeting in person. And so we wanted to know were, were patients getting support? Where were they getting it? Just really, how were they feeling? So we fielded the survey. Um, it went out April 21st and we closed it on May 13th. So if you think about that time frame, clinics were closed and then boom, during that May 3rd, beginning of May, maybe some of those clinics even started opening. So, um, but again, it wasn't about the opening and how you feel about your clinic being open because it wasn't during that, really during that time frame when we drafted this. Um, so let me just tell you a little bit about the demographics and then we'll go into, um, we can talk about some of the findings, but you're right. We had 576 people fill this out. 99% of them identified as female. 97% identified as either married or partnered. These women hailed from 33 states. So I, I think it's fair to say it was a nationwide, it was a nationwide survey. And um, the ages, um, the, the two biggest age groups, the largest was at 35%. So a, a little over a third were between the ages of 30 and 33 years old. And then about 30%, so about another third, were between 34 and 37. And then it breaks down from there. The next largest was uh, 17% being 38 to 41, and, and then down from there. But if you think about it, so 65% were between 30 and 37, women, married, and uh, all from all over the country. So that's where we start. Your age is pretty representative of the U.S. patient population of the those that it's it's 99% women, most of whom are married or partner. Did you stratify for those that were in same-sex, same-sex relationships or not? We asked all of those questions um, in terms of where they might be in terms of, of marital status. And um, we actually have the full survey results um, available um, from our website. So you can see how many identified or chose not to not answer um, those particular questions. So we, um, you know, we asked a lot of questions about how they were feeling and how they were doing. And we, um, we even had a list of, of, of different emotions and we asked them, you know, how often have you felt these emotions? And they weren't all negative emotions. Some of them were happy or hopeful and, and those kinds of things. But really what, what hit us when we looked at the findings in terms of how they felt, it, it's no surprise. And, and honestly, this is how most of the country probably was feeling um, as well. But we, we asked them, um, how, how often are you feeling nervous? You know, 56% they're feeling nervous frequently or all the time. Sad, 68% are saying they feel sad frequently or all the time. Discouraged, 67% they felt discouraged frequently or all the time. And then worried, 65% said they were felt worried frequently or all the time. So that's, that's this group. Of, of people who are nervous, sad, discouraged, worried. And again, that's, that's a lot of emotions that, that many of us were feeling. 
but I think you have to kind of level set and say, okay, this is this group of people. This is how they were feeling at this point in time. Now, what can, where do we go from here and what else do they tell us? So Resolve does a lot of surveys. You're known for doing a lot of surveys. Can you give us an idea of what this is against baseline? I mean, we've got 81% saying that the, the clinic closure was stressful on them, 68% saying they felt sad frequently or all the time. What is this relative to uh, infertility patients in non-COVID times? Well, this um, this certainly was, was a little bit off the charts in terms of their emotional um, strain. And you've, um, you've got um, patients at this point in time, maybe not certain when their clinic is going to open. Um, we're now you know, four plus weeks into the closure, if you, if you think that the closure started around March 17th or that week, and this uh, survey started um, on April 21st. So you're having a group of people who are now in this GRIF, have been in this for a few weeks now. And um, I think we started to see some of that um, anxiety increase as, as the clinic closures hung on. Now, we also wanted to know kind of where they were in their family building. And, and by the way, we didn't let anybody fill out the survey unless they had been in um, process with a clinic in the prior 30 days from, uh, I think we did March 1st. So even if you had started with a clinic back in January or February and you, and you were done, you couldn't fill out the survey. This was really aimed at that group of people caught in um, the clinic closure who, who were in process. So 20 anywhere in process could have been. Yeah. So we said like, I, I, I was getting ready to do an IUI. I was getting ready to do IVF. So 23% were said that at that point in time, when the clinic closed, they were preparing for a fresh or frozen embryo transfer in the next 30 days. So that's, and then 26% were planning to do IVF, but hadn't yet started. So you've got, um, you've got a, a big chunk of the people who filled this out, like ready to go. And that's what we were looking for. We were looking for who are those people that are, that are ready to go and, and what are they telling us? So, yeah, you know, you mentioned the, 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 the clinic closure being stressful to them. We had 52% express concern that the treatment delay will diminish their chance of having a baby. So Think about that. This is slightly more than half are saying this closure is concerning to me because it's going to be cause a delay and it may impact my ability to have a baby. So whether that's true or not, I don't know, given their personal diagnosis and, and everything else. But um, that's that's how they were feeling at that at that point in time. So, you know, again, no surprise, the clinic closure for the people who filled this out. Um, the clinic closure was stressful, 81%, and 79% um, said it was going to have a negative impact on them. might be interesting, I just had this thought of getting, you know, people asking them these same questions, now looking back, you know, after your clinic has now reopened, has this had a negative impact on you? You know, that's something for, for a future survey, because they're, they're going to have some time to be able to look back and say, huh, was it really negative or not? Or was it just how I felt in that moment of time? Do you have plans for follow-up? Because one of the things that I think is, you said, I think, would you say 23 something percent 
of folks who are planning on doing an FET or a retreat yeah. in the next 30 days. Yeah. And so I would be interested in seeing of those, right. how many actually did right. in the last 30 or 60 since. Yeah. Since well, it would be, it would be not only interesting to ask them that, but no, I, I hadn't really thought about the follow-up survey until I'm sitting here talking to you about it because you know, it's it's a moment in time, and sometimes you you want to get um, a perspective of of people. And as as you know, just because you heard it from patients during this time, you heard it from your clients. High, high, high anxiety, and um, and we don't know, you know, what patients, um, what the reality was of this actually impacting their future ability to have a baby. So. Um, but um, but yeah, there was there was some some findings that I, I'd also love to share about their communication with their practices because we wanted to get a sense of how were they communicating, who was communicating with them, and Griff, we we honed in on those questions because anecdotally we were hearing from patients during the clinic closures that that they were only finding out about what was going on through the clinic's Facebook page. One, you know, uh, one group of patients we talked to just had like on their calendar at regular intervals, they were reaching out and calling their clinic because they weren't hearing things. And so they were like, okay, it's Tuesday. I'm going to call my clinic again. And also the clinic closure, you know, wasn't something that clinics had planned for. And, and, you know, thinking about just the mechanics and their practices of how do you contact everyone I mean, we found this out when um, we had the clinics that had the tank failures, just finding, just getting phone trees and, and, and patients' phone numbers and being able to sit down and call potentially hundreds of people, it's an undertaking. So we were curious about who they were talking to, you know, how, how those communications went. So I want to share some of that with you. They also didn't all shut down at the same time, too, which, right. which made right. things interesting and and the information that people were getting to be different it was all happening so fast right we had to add we have a monthly reporting document for all of our clients and we had to add an extra tab just for COVID-19 updates so that we could keep track of what our clients were doing we had questions wow. like are you allowing the partner at consults are you still are you still doing retrievals are you still doing transfers um, are you, um, are you only doing virtual consults now? And that was changing for people so rapidly and you could never look at one person's and, right. and have it be the exact same as another clinic. Every clinic Absolutely. was doing something completely different, oftentimes in the same state. Right. And you know, we've got people from New Jersey on right now in California. Those were two of the earlier states to shut down. And there were still people that were doing things much differently from, from each other, even in states like those. So we, we really wanted to know, and, I, and if you look at the full survey results, we, uh, you can see all the different questions because we asked like, who you, were you in contact with? We asked questions about when you called, did somebody actually answer the phone? And at the time we thought that these would be really kind of interesting um, questions. Some of them at the end of the day, maybe aren't so interesting, but um, no surprise here, 80% of those that actually had had contact with their clinic um, were, had been in contact with a nurse. And, um, and so again, that's, that's not surprising. We hear that all the time um, about, um, 
you know, who they were in contact with. We had, um, we had the ability in most of our questions for people to put in like open text if perhaps what we offered wasn't the answer. The, the link to the survey that you're going to post doesn't show all of those because there could be identifying information, personally identifying information. But a lot of people um, who wrote in there that they were in contact with the finance the financial counselors and, and that sort of thing. There's also a lot of practices that have a patient liaison, that's the title of the person. And so it's not a nurse and it's not, you know, office staff. And um, they, a lot of people wrote that in and we didn't have that as one of the options. So, um, so but of those who, who said, yeah, I, I have 80% said, um, said the nurse. But then we, you know, we asked a bunch of questions about, that the, was the communication with the clinic, did it, did it meet your needs? Was, was this helpful to you? Was that communication meeting your needs? And 30%, a third said no. When we said that, you know, did the, did the communication meet your needs? And they, they disagreed. They, um, they, they either disagreed or strong, strongly disagreed. So, you know, a third of the, of the people that filled this out were not totally in love with the, the, the um, communication that they had from their clinic. So what about, if I'm playing devil's advocate, Barb, the counter argument, or the, just the, the point of, well, 33% might be an insatiable, or there, there might be some segment that is insatiable in terms of the communication that we could provide, whether it's yeah. 33% is higher above baseline or by how much, um, but there might be a segment of the population that we just can't, can't uh, ease. Right. What do you think of that with respect to someone? I mean, this is this is a sampling of 576 women, and you know, you're not going to walk away with let's change everything. And this is is we didn't ask them what clinic. We asked them what state. Um, California, Illinois, New York, Massachusetts, Texas, Colorado, Michigan, all of those had, you know, a fair amount of people who filled out the survey, but it doesn't, it still doesn't um, necessarily give you enough information. I mean, from my perspective, whenever you look at this, there's always bias of, of the sample size. You're looking at a, a, a very niche period of time, but I still think there's opportunities the way I like to look at it is great if if let's level test this against our own patient population. Why don't you survey your own patients? You and I are not going to name names, but we know people at clinics who are surveying their patients on a regular basis and constantly using that information to improve their um, patient experience. This might be something that um, you want to pick up on. Gee, are we that third or do is this representative of of the patients that we serve and i think from my perspective when i look at a lot of these responses that's what i would take away is i would say i'm not you know i don't know who these clinics are and i think a lot of clinics did a phenomenal job we know that but are we satisfied that a third of the people who filled up this survey didn't feel like they had good communication you know I, there's some other things i'll go over in here that i'm not i'm not satisfied that that's how patients were feeling well, I, I think that a, a third could be a normal baseline number of that the, the communication uh, and maybe I'm maybe I'm on the, the right the, uh, this is uh, the contact with my 
my healthcare team has met my needs. I, I think that the number of people that strongly agree or disagree with that statement could easily be a third. It could easily be a third at baseline. And, and I think that that is one of the things that we try to consult groups on is managing that expectation from the beginning, because we are a generation of patients that have, and staff members that have had everything available to them immediately, whether it's Netflix or Uber or Instacart or DoorDash. And that comes into a much more complex delivery model, such as healthcare. And so one of the things that needs to be done immediately is to correct that expectation. This is the, this is what people are coming in with. And there's a number of different ways to be able to do that. But this is one of the things that I strongly recommend is for groups to share from the beginning, both outwardly in their marketing, their public image, their social media, and then inside when people are on the one-to-one level, when they're actually in the patient experience inside the practice, resetting that expectation. You have to reset it early and often. And it's one of the problems I have when groups are too centered on here's the baby, here's the baby, this is what you're looking for, because it doesn't allow for people to reset their expectations. And I understand the temptation to to say, here's the baby, and have people only think about that. The problem is that there can be, uh, there can be dissatisfaction with expectations down the line to the extent that you say, we're here to help you pursue a baby, but first we're here to get you answers. First, we're here to help you with some other things and to properly set expectations. Um, And the communication, the frequency of contact is one of the things that needs to be reset from the beginning or else people are, are generally dissatisfied. One of the things I would also say that I've learned just in this crisis uh, and managing our staff and, and just human nature, your anxiety is high. And, and, and so you want, so much information even you want people to tell you what they don't know which is so counterintuitive we are we are when you make a presentation you make a presentation you don't then say oh and here's all the things i don't know um but but that's that's where we are and i think i think you're sensing this too from some of the survey responses in in that you know was is it realistic for patients to expect to have this one-on-one personal level of communication um, or, or, you know, or not. But, but the way that was worded was, did it meet your needs? And everybody's needs are, are different. Um, so here's, here's an interesting one. We, as you know, Resolve is, is very big in, into support and, and we uh, really encourage people facing an infertility diagnosis and, and going down this journey to support, get the support they need, whether that's through friends and family, through a mental health provider, whether that's through a support group, is to care for yourself. And and so no surprise here, we asked questions about that. You know, we asked if if their healthcare team had provided them with mental health resources. A lot of people, a lot of clinics I've talked to, they they did that. Um, And a lot of them have mental health professionals on their team. So gosh, you and I know tons of psychologists and so forth. Those, those people work in night and day. I mean, they were doing telehealth night and day and, and talking to patients. So we asked, 
have, have you been provided with mental health resources? Only 24% agreed or strongly agreed and 58% disagreed or strongly disagreed. So that really jumped out at me and I thought, wow, you have 58% who aren't, who don't feel like they got mental health resources from their practices. And I'm not, you know, we didn't go into specifics, like a mental health resource could be as simple as here's, here's some resources, right? It could okay. be um, that there's a mental health professional on staff or that there's a referral or um, that, that there's um, opportunities to, to, you know, have a support group or talk to people. So I think this is a really great lesson learned for clinics is to look at that and to say, um, you know, are there, are, how are we doing in providing resources um, to our patients? And if you're a practice that doesn't have in-house mental health professionals, you know, reach out to us, reach out to me, and we're happy to work with you on what, you know, a, a, a list of resources looks like. And, and how that can be provided to your patients because um, you may not know of all of those. And, and if you hadn't already had this in place, Griff, there was a lot going on. <laughs> Putting this list of resources together for your, for your patients may not have been your top priority. But, um, but we know based on how these people were feeling. But that this, list, this list of resources should exist already. They shouldn't... I, I put one of these together in 2015 as a, as a start. I mean, everyone should have at right. the very least right. one of these things. Right. And, and I think it's making sure there's, there's the, Hey, we have this poster on our website or we put a link on Facebook on, you know, March 18th to patients knowing it's there and being, you know, re, con like constantly reaching out because you know, there may have been people at the beginning of this closure who were like, I'm good, I got it. And then like three or four weeks in, we're like, I'm freaking out. Like, <laughs> I need some help now. Where do I go? And, and so you have to kind of remember um, that reminding this group um, on a regular basis. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that was really, for me, something that really stuck out. And then Griff, I've been, I was on um, a few of your webinars during this closure. I was on a lot that other organizations and ASRM were putting on. And one of the mess, and we did some too, one of the messages we kept hearing from, from healthcare providers as a message to patients was, look, use this time to take care of yourself, you know, exercise, eat well, meditate, I mean, we did a webinar on like how to survive this and we had some great feedback and advice. And there was a lot of really great specific things that patients could do to take care of themselves so that when clinics were open, you know, they'd be ready to go. So we asked them about that. We asked if their healthcare team had provided them with ways to stay healthy during the clinic closure. 53% disagreed or st strongly disagreed. So a little more than half again, didn't feel that they were given ways to stay healthy during this. So, you know, again, this isn't all the clinics. This is a, a small sampling. So those are kind of two easy things probably that you could put together a uh, mental health resources. And then, you know, what are, what are ways that people, even today, Grip, we know there's people who are afraid to go out of their homes, let alone into a IVF clinic. 
they probably still could use some some advice on how to how to stay healthy uh, so that they're when they feel ready to go, um, they're in a good place. And these things are relative. They can be relatively easy to do. To your point, there's there's a a range of things that people could do from having a one sheet of available resources and say, here's where to find it versus here's a direct referral to a mental health right. professional right. or having a mental health professional on staff and having one free 15 minute visit or there, there's a whole range that people could do. But to the extent that one manages expectations in the beginning, you can often meet those expectations based on different points of that spectrum. And it's, extremely important to do because otherwise then the only thing that we're helping people do is to have a baby and we're not doing that for what 30 percent of the people that we're going to see and we're also not doing that for people before they go through a lot of hard aspects of treatment and so if that is the only thing that we allow ourselves to be in the patient's eyes the prospective patient's eyes then by nature that many people are going to be dissatisfied with their experience but if we correct the expectation from the beginning said this is long this is hard we're here to help you with this some of the things that we that you'll need help with aren't in our wheelhouse we're going to do our best to direct them here are a few of the things that you might want to consider and i think the the hurdle to doing that very often can be just people are inundated Right. from the beginning they, you're trying to tell someone what's going to be in their in that they're going to have to do in their testing you're going to talk about in their follow-up and they can barely wrap their heads around that sometimes because there's so much going on uh and that's fine but this is where content comes in that you can direct people to at different times or send to them outbound and we should all have a content chain of things like this so that we can one manage expectations and then two get people the resources so that the only thing that that they're not hanging everything about our clinics is having a baby at the end. Yeah, and 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 I think just again, lesson learned from this process just in life, this this whole COVID-19 process is that just doing it one time is may not be enough. Um, you know, if you say, well, it was in their new patient kit, you know, we got it. Um, you know, those kinds of um, things could be helpful to different people at different places in their journey. And so just a, a reminder, they, they may be your patient for a year and a half and forget where that new patient packet even is. Um, and now they're like freaking out and need, need some help. So, um, so something, something to keep in mind. But you know, I think those are two, those are two things right there, the mental health, staying healthy, that I was surprised. Um, I, I thought actually um, that, that we'd see patients in a, in a lot better place. Um, you know, no surprise here when we asked them where you were getting help and resources, um, social media was the top place, 71% were connecting with others on social media. Um, number two place where they were getting support was through other people, peers who had gone through this. It didn't specifically say a support group, but from peers, 57% um, said that. We know there are in-person support groups, there are online support groups, there's Facebook communities, there's online support communities that are all peer. And so we, we certainly saw um, people utilizing all of those available resources. 
Do you want your IVF lab to be at capacity? Do you want one or more of your docs to be busier? Do you want to see more patients at your satellite office before you decide to close the doors on it? But private equity firms are buying up and opening large practice groups across the country and near you. Tech companies are reaching your patients first and selling your own patients back to you. And patients are coming in with more information from the internet and from social media than ever before, for good or for bad, and you need a plan. A fertility marketing system is not just buying some Google ads here or doing a couple of Facebook posts here. It's a diagnosis, a prognosis, and a proven treatment plan. Just getting price quotes for a website, for a video, or for SEO, that's like paying for ICSI or donor egg ad hoc without doing testing, without a protocol, and without any consideration of what else might be needed. The first step of building a fertility marketing system is the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's the cornerstone on what your entire strategy is built. You don't have to, but it is best to do that before you hire a new marketing person, before you put out an RFP or look for services, before you get your house in order, because by definition, this is what gets your team in alignment. Fertility Bridge can help you with that. It is better to have a third party do this. We've done it for IVF centers from all over the world, and we only serve businesses who serve the fertility field. It's such an easy way to try us out. It's such a measured way to get your practice leadership aligned, and it's a proven process to begin your marketing system. Without it, practices spend marketing dollars aimlessly and they stress their teams and they even lose patience and market share. Amidst these changes that are happening across our field and across society, if you're serious about growing or even maintaining your practice, sign up for the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's at fertilitybridge.com or linked here in the show notes. There is no downside to doing this for your practice, only upside. Now, back to Inside Reproductive Health. So, you know, I, I want to talk a little bit too about how they, what they were told um, by their clinic about the closure. That was the other thing that we were really curious about, Griff. Like, you know, I mean, stuff was happening, you know, governors were shutting down medical treatments. Um, we saw, you know, ASRM recommendations impacting clinics. Um, and it was just, it was, it was just kind of, all over the place. I mean, some some places it didn't matter what the ASRM recommendations were. Their governor said, you know, no, you can't go get any kind of medical treatment. So we asked about, um, you know, what was their understanding? And 52% said they were told by their clinic that the reason for the clinic closing was the ASRM recommendations followed by state or local governments, but only at 28%. So the the patients were told by their clinic, we're going to be closed, 52%, the reason being ASRM, 28% state or local, you know, guidance. So then we asked them, what are you being told about how you're going to reopen? This is the other thing. We had so many patients who were like, when are, when are they going to open and how are they going to make the decisions? And, and, you know, I don't think these clinics knew. I don't think anybody knew. And, and so, again, you've got patients wanting information that nobody really knew or had. Um, mm-hmm. So you, we asked them, what are you being told about reopening decisions? You know, how are those going to be made? And, again, we had more were saying that those decisions were going to be based on ASRM recommendations than government orders. So um, the ASRM recommendations were not hidden. Um, they certainly were known 
to patients and were what was being communicated by, um, by clinics to their patients as to why they were A, closed, and B, when they would reopen. So knowing that now, I now know why patients were waiting literally with bated breath every few weeks for the latest updates to those ASR recommendations. It was almost like I was kind of like, how do they even know these exist and where they find them? Well, they were very clearly being, you know, told that by, by their practices. Well, that was part of the, uh, a, a number of things that, that came from that, right? Was because I, I think for a while people didn't feel like they had um, anything to go off, but ASRM guidance, even though it was only guidance, I think people felt like, well, I, many people felt like I at least need to do some version of what else everyone else is doing. I at least need to um, incorporate some of these guidelines. And then the Fertility Providers Alliance had their own guidelines. Um, but I, would, would you have done something different? No, I mean, I think it was the truth. I think that um, that practices were looking at those ASRM recommendations and they were re reviewing those. And, and, and then for a lot of them, uh, state guidance came in and, and state orders came in. Um, we know, you know, I'm here in the mid-Atlantic and, you know, we were we were shut down by governors. And it, it honestly, if ASRM had said open today, I mean, they wouldn't have been able to. So there, I think what, what we are getting from this is, is, you know, what the practices were doing and they were getting questions by their patients. And this was a truthful answer. This is, we're looking at the ASRM recommendations and we'll be basing our decision-making on what those recommendations are. Um, so I, I'm not really saying that I'm super surprised by this, but I thought that it's like the governor orders and the government orders would have been like more closely mm. tied to it because then it became so many states that they couldn't do anything because of, of the governor's orders. And, and in fact, we started reaching out to governors and we had, you know, several hundred people send letters to their governors saying, please open, you know, fertility clinics. So I, I wasn't going to, I wasn't sure going into this survey, how strongly the ASRM recommendations were going to be what patients had heard, but, um, but they definitely, um, definitely were, were told. Um, and then, you know, we, um, we asked some questions about um, the clinic opening and I, I, on page 31, so, um, you know, we, we asked them your biggest concern, you know, resulting from the closure of your clinic. We talked about that, you know, that the clinic delay is going to impact their ability to have a, have a child. And then we asked them about what's your biggest concern if your clinic is still open or in the process of reopening. So this is, remember, we did this at the end of April, beginning of May, so this could actually um, be happening. And so, you know, we, we put things in the survey that they could choose, like, you know, what are you worried about? Uh, I might be exposed to COVID-19. The clinic staff may be exposed. You know, this may put my baby at risk. You know, maybe the treatment is going to need to be suspended once it starts. Maybe safety precautions taken may not guarantee my safety. So it was a lot about clinic safety, COVID-19, um, you know, would they have enough personal protective equipment? 
because we kept hearing that, um, that, that maybe these clinics shouldn't be opening because there wasn't enough PPE. So we, we had all of those choices. And then the top choice was, I am aware of the risks and willing to decide with my doctor how to proceed. It was, that was like almost 33%. The next closest was my treatment may need to be suspended after it starts at 20%. So I was really shocked at this Griff because I thought, I thought we'd have a lot more people saying COVID-19 is going to put my pregnancy or my baby at risk, or I'm afraid to get COVID-19 from the clinic. When I saw that it was like, hey, I know the risks and let me and my doctor decide. I was like, wow, okay. That, that, was, um, that was surprising. May not be surprising to you, but it was surprising to me because we, we talk so much about you know, safety and making sure that, that, that the patients feel safe and that you know, it's, it's okay to come back. And, and you've got this group of people who filled this out survey saying, let me get in there, talk to my doctor, I know the risks. And this is, this is I think, you know, one of the things that, that you see today, here we are in June, and people are like, should I get on an airplane? Should I go to a restaurant? You know, what are the risks? What do I know? And what am I comfortable doing? And I think the people that filled up this survey, at least those, the 33% were saying, let me decide. Yeah. yeah. Exposure to COVID-19 is very low here, which is interesting. Many of us likely would have thought that that would be higher. And this, this is folks that had, so they were, this, this entire group, they've been to an REI within, they had been to an REI with the, within the 30 days prior to closure. Is that right? Absolutely. They are, they are, they've already, you know, had their consult They're they're in process. So these are the folks that they're in momentum and something came and derailed the, right. their momentum. Right. Something could be, it could be different from prospective patients going forward. Right. Their concerns could be higher in other areas, but I, I think this is in our really interesting. I'm still, can you help me a little bit with the phrasing of I'm aware of the risks and willing to decide with my doctor how to proceed? I'm not understanding exactly what the concern is there. Is this like, you know, the uh, we're going, we're going to go skydiving and we had bad weather before we had clouds and thunder. And now the storm has passed. What is your biggest concern? And it's no longer, most people are not saying clouds and thunder, but that they're actually going to jump out of the plane. Right. right. Is, is that what this is? Yeah. Like, well, when you look I'm at this, gonna, the concern is I'm actually going to go through with it. No, the concern is like, I, I actually don't have any concerns. So you know, when, when we put this together, we listed like, oh, my clinic won't have enough PPE. Oh, somebody at the clinic might have COVID. Of course, the big one we kept hearing, you know, what will, will my, will my future pregnancy baby be impacted? This is what we were hearing, why, why, why patients may not want to walk back in the door, right? So, mm -hmm. and then as you go through it, you're like, you know, there may be people who don't have any concerns. So we better put that one as an option. And it turned out that's what the majority of the people chose. Like, I don't, I know the risks. I don't have any concerns. It's between my doctor and I. So um, it's, it's a little bit what we heard when, um, when people were going to their governors and saying, hey, open up my state, let the doctor and the patient make the decision on whether care should be given or not. And, you know, this is, you know, Grip, this is a patient population that wants that personal autonomy 
wants um, to be able to be very engaged and involved in their treatment. And um, I'm not saying, you know, they know best or they don't know best, but they're, they're generally a vocal patient population who, like you say, they have, they have a goal in mind. And this is, this is telling me that I actually know the risks and I'm willing, I'm willing to go for it. And then another fifth didn't, didn't answer. And another fifth said that, or, or said not applicable. And then another fifth said my, their biggest concern is their treatment might need to be suspended after it starts. Right. So yeah. This is a largely, yeah. the only thing that I'm worried about is not being able to do it. Right. Um, right. Right. And, and let, you know, and again, let me and my doctor decide, like this could, this could have been, you know, that could have been partly aimed at, at, government intervention and saying, hey, you know, let me let me decide. Um, so, you know, you get to this point where you're in the door. I mean, I was telling a, a reporter, I said, it, it, this isn't just about, oh, you got to wait a few weeks, you might have to wait a couple months. They've already been through so much just to get to this point. And now there's a pause and and they don't they don't understand it. And, um, and that's, that's where these people are at. And this, these are for the folks that are, their concern is about the process of reopening. I also found these other concerns to be very interesting, which is, which was during the closure of the clinic and the majority of those folks, just over half said that it will, it will delay their their chances of of having a baby and so there was only small numbers that uh said things like that their insurance won't be available after the fact or that they won't have the money to pay after the fact or that it's not safe to pursue treatment or safe to become pregnant those were pretty small numbers yeah yeah i was i was surprised at that too because Anecdotally, we were hearing that from people that, you know, this is, this is going to be so much harder because my insurance is going to be cut off. And, you know, we were hearing from people, I'm, I'm so glad I'm, I'm relieved because I am scared to go right now. And, and now, and knowing that I don't even have to make that decision is such a relief. Um, we absolutely heard that from people, but um, certainly that particular question, again, this is this sample size. I'm not saying this is every clinic or every patient. Um, this is this this sample size. And so again, when you look at the results, you know, look at are there opportunities to test this against your own patient population? Um, are there opportunities to look at your own procedures and also to see if there's some places where um, you might be able to just you know bring it up a notch or, you know, again, learn from your own patient population and, and, and then see where those gaps may be. So Barb, what would you like to conclude with our audience about what they can take away from this data and how they would benefit from implementing some of it? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, while it was 576, it's still a smallish sample size. Um, I would um, maybe look at some of the questions and and pose them to your own patient population. I mean, you can do this on SurveyMonkey. It's pretty easy and, and test it. You know, one of the things you and I are used to hearing 
when when there's surveys like this is we're used to hearing clinics say, oh, we I know we did a great job. Or you get some who are saying it was rough and we didn't, we honestly were just tr just trying to, you know, keep the lights on. And maybe there's some opportunities here, um, considerations that that clinics have to to look at their own processes. God help us that this never happens again. Um, having said that, I think even in normal times, um, this is a patient population that needs, as you said, expectations, communication, support, and um, and we still have, you know, we don't have clinics open a, open at a hundred percent patient volume, you know that even if they're open, they may not, they may only be seeing a small volume of what they saw in January and February. And so there's still going to be patients who are waiting and um, perhaps need mental health resources, perhaps need ways to stay healthy, perhaps need ways to just stay in touch. And so I, you know, I would look at, you know, what are your internal processes for that and, and how are you doing? Um, but again, there's a lot we don't know, Griff, um, certainly from, from this survey. And uh, it will be, be kind of cool to, to resurvey some of these folks and say, okay, you thought that your biggest concern was going to be the delay, that it would impact your ability to get pregnant. Was that even true or valid? You know? and, um, and, and some of this people may just put behind them and never want to revisit. Well, I'm glad we could, you could come on and brainstorm. Barb, that's what people come on the show for, just to have me as a sense of clairvoyance sounding board and brilliant ideas will come. Well, I, I, you know, I thought this would, would be great to brainstorm with you because you're advising and working with clinics. And then we're, we're on the side of the, what the, what the patients are, right? Where the patients are. So, you know, you have clinics have and do things to achieve a certain result, but if the patients don't feel that, then maybe we need to revisit how that's being implemented and being done. So I love that you have this for your own business and your own your own needs, but I also, we opened um, the survey results up to the whole world because if there's even just a small little nugget that, that somebody can learn from it um, or that, that helps them, uh, that's awesome. I appreciate you doing that because I can already tell from going over it with you uh, how helpful this information is to us and how it challenged some of the assumptions that we had. And that's true for everyone else. So thank you for making it available to everyone. And thank you for coming back on to Inside Reproductive Health, Barb Kalura, president of Resolve. It has been a pleasure to have you back. It's been, it's been great. Great to see you. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.